going to be in the book of Nehemiah this morning, Nehemiah chapter 8, rapidly coming to the end of this book. We still got kind of the second half to go, but we'll, we'll cover a lot of ground this morning. I say that, but my voice is holding out for the moment. We'll see how long it holds. This morning may have to be a little bit shorter than, uh, than our typical Sunday. I'm sure you guys are sad about that. Cut your uh, morning naps a little bit short. So, uh, like I said, Nehemiah chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, and then into chapter 8. I don't know how often you guys think about what we do here on Sunday mornings. Obviously, it's my job to think about what we do here on Sunday mornings, what we do as a church. It's my job to kind of parse through that, work through that, and I think about it uh, a lot. I'm constantly thinking about it. And I think it's funny because what we do here on Sunday mornings, what we just did, what we're doing right now is kind of an odd thing. We sing, we pray, we listen to somebody talk for over 40 minutes in a lecture style. And why do we do this? Have you ever stopped to consider this? My, my guess is that I'd say most of us started doing this because we simply thought we were supposed to. That it's just kind of what you do on a Sunday morning, especially here, East Tennessee, kind of Bible Belt. This is kind of just what you do. And so that's my guess where most of you come from with this. This is just, you started because you were supposed to, and then you just kept doing it. You kept doing it for a variety of reasons, but you just kind of kept doing it, which is fine and good. I don't want to knock that. I think there's a lot of good uh, to that. Uh, but for those that don't come to church regularly, those that, that are kind of outsiders to the regular routine of church, they can kind of see how odd it is what we do. And I think that's kind of lost on those of us that have been coming to church for a while because this feels normal to us, but it's not normal to a lot of people. It just looks different than most things in our culture. This is not a concert. It's not the same kind of thing. This is not showing up to just hear a lecture. It's not just that. There's a, there's a rhythm. There's a routine. It's what we would call a liturgy to what we do when we stand, when we, when we sit. All those type of things are kind of baked into what we do. And so I wonder about you. If you were to ask, what is the church? I hope most of you would say something like, well, it's not a building. It's not a set of programs. But it's a group of people, a community of people that all believe in and worship Jesus. And that's the right answer. That is a right answer. That is what a church is. It's a good, solid answer. But if somebody were to follow up with that, and they were to say, well, what exactly do you guys do? What is it that you guys do as a church? More specifically, what exactly does Providence Church do when you gather? And do you know why we do it? Do you know why we do these things? Now, I think these, that answer would be a bit more diverse. I think if I were to go around to each one of you and kind of ask you that question, I would probably get pretty distinct answers from most of you. I mean, there might be some general categories that things would fit in, but I think I would get pretty distinct answers from person to person. And that's to be understood. I hope I get a chance to talk about this a lot This summer, our series that we'll be moving into in a few weeks will address a lot of these questions. Why do we do what we do? But this morning's text, I think, can be kind of a primer for this, kind of help us see in seed form what the pattern is for our church today. What what began in the book of, 
Well, honestly, what began in the Old Testament, fleshed out here in the book of Nehemiah, becomes a pattern for what we do here on Sunday mornings. Now, we've covered a lot of ground since our first days in the book of Ezra. We've seen a wide variety of ways that God has ordained this long road home. That's our series title. He's ordained this long road home for his people out of exile. And today is essentially the celebration of that moment when they can finally feel like they're home. At least somewhat home. What we're going to see is that today is the culmination of all the hard work of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and all the course of this over a hundred years now that they have been working to come back to Jerusalem, to get the temple rebuilt, to get the wall rebuilt, and to be back home. It's just short of a hundred years, and beginning in, uh, at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 7, actually at the end of Nehemiah chapter 7, we have the account of the moment when the wall is finally built. So let's look at that. This is Nehemiah chapter 7. Uh, it is the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah, and Hananiah the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut, shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So the wall is built at this point. All that work that we've seen in the book of Nehemiah, they're now to this point where it is built. And it's time to kind of turn our gaze inward. So Nehemiah starts talking about the kind of the shape of the city inside the walls, to take care of the, the things inside the walls that have been neglected. The rest of chapter 7 is just going to be a list of exiles, their families, the people that are now inside the city making Jerusalem home. This list is very similar to one in Ezra that we saw all the way back in chapter 2. And so here we are in chapter 8. So you get through all of chapter 7. We talk about the people of Jerusalem, the people that are there making this place their home. Temple is built, wall is built, and the people are simply going back to life. Going back to what made Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Going back to the things that they know and the things that they love. So what does it look like when they do that? When they go back to what is what they love and to what they know? What they know. It doesn't mean that they go to the lake. It doesn't mean that they start going to ball games. It doesn't mean that they go back to their homes and kind of withdraw from everyone else. It means they go back to life and what made Israel Israel. And the heart of that was worship and the law of Moses. Worship and the law of Moses. Look with me in Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1. And all the people gathered there as one man into the square before the water gate. This is an amazing scene that we're going to read here. And they told Ezra, the scribe, remember Ezra, he's still around. He's not gone. He's an old man at this point. But Ezra comes out. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. Do so you hear that? He comes out, and he just reads the law from early morning 
to midday, just reading the law. I told you this morning it's going to be a little bit shorter because of my voice, but if I ever had justification to keep you guys long, this week would be the week. Because Nehemiah and Ezra just kind of lay it out there all day long. We're just going to read the Bible. I hope you guys have fun. That's what they do. It says, And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside them stood all these guys on his right hand and then all these guys on his left hand, kind of the city officials, the elders of the town. And then in verse 5 it says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it all, the people stood. And Ezra, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord their fa- with their faces to the ground. So this is the scene. The walls are built, the people go back to their homes, resume life, and then they come back together for a big celebration. And what happens is Ezra comes out, he pulls out the scroll of Moses, the law of Moses, and he just starts reading it. He's up on an elevated platform in the middle of the town square, and as he comes up and he starts reading this, all the people stand in unison and they listen to what he has to say. And then as he says it, they bow down and they worship, they say amen, and he just keeps going from morning until the middle of the afternoon. What did they do when they finally had all the freedom to do what they needed to do? When they had the protection of the walls, when they had everything that they needed, what did they do? Now, there's no doubt that they went back and built their houses. There's no doubt that they went back and took care of their families. But what is recorded for us here is that Ezra comes and he reads the law, and they had church. They had church. That's what they chose to do when they had the freedom to do anything. They chose to have church. They had a church service. Ezra's back. He brings it out. It's, just, it's, it's a powerful scene for us to witness. He opens the book to read. The congregation is all gathered, and they listen to him. He's not even preaching. He's not even doing anything uh, preaching at all. He's just opening, it, opening up somewhere in Genesis or Leviticus and reading. He's got no PowerPoint, no funny stories, no video clips, no smoke machine, no band playing with the keys behind him to make everybody like feel something special. He didn't even have a microphone. All he had was standing in the middle of the people on a big platform, and he's just reading. And the people are carefully listening. He did this all day until they took a break, and the people worshiped as he did it. Now listen, I don't want to make too strong of a point here, but Ezra was a boring preacher here. There was nothing exciting about what he was doing. There was nothing to get them charged up, nothing to keep their attention. But they listened. They listened. Perhaps it was because there wasn't another church down the road for them to go to where the preacher was funnier or better or had better illustrations. But I'm guessing that they didn't move because what he was saying was far more, or because what he was saying was far more important than anything else that he could put out there. The reading that he was giving them was far more important than anything else he would be saying to them. 
My guess is if he started like talking about what he was reading, they would, have, they would have said, no, 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 go back to what you were reading. We were very interested in what you had to say, Ezra. We want you to read this. And why would they have done that? It's because they knew that they needed to hear the words of God. It was their lifeblood. It was their inheritance. It was their faith. And they had not heard it in close to 200 years at this point. They had not heard it regularly read in a congregational setting like this in in well over 100 years. They didn't know the law of Moses. They didn't understand the law of Moses. They didn't have it in their homes. They didn't have their Bibles to go and read and study together. It was only there on a scroll for the scribe to be able to stand up and read, for the priest to be able to communicate. And so you can imagine if they didn't have all the things that they needed in order for them to have church, quote unquote, and they didn't have the book at home, they wouldn't know it. They would have had no way to study it. So when Ezra stands up there to read, they are enthralled with what he is reading because it is everything to them. It means everything to him. They needed to hear the words of God in order to understand who they were as individuals, in order to understand who they were as a community, as a country, and as a people. They needed to be reminded of why Israel was Israel, and why God was God. Because they were on the verge of forgetting it. When they went away to exile, that was taken from them. When they came back, they had to do all the hard work of rebuilding that took almost a century. And they needed to be reminded who they were. And then what happens as he reads? Well, one, they worship. We saw that. But that's not all they do. Let's look in chapter 8, verse 9. And these few verses have been so comforting to me over the course of the last few weeks as I've studied this. Nehemiah, chapter 8, verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor... And Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So I find these words comforting, because if you understand what is happening here, it is a beautiful picture of grace. The more I think about this passage, the more it comforts me and the more it means to me. So I want you to think about the scene. As Ezra reads the law, the priests are kind of interspersed throughout the crowd. Ezra's reading priests all throughout this massive crowd that is around them, making sure that everyone understands what is being read, kind of helping interpret it, helping kind of relay some things. They may not have been able to hear everything he was reading. And as they begin to get the sense of what is being read, they're broken by it. They realize as this law is being read and as the the stories of, of God's faithfulness in the book of Genesis come out, 
that they are that they are being made aware of their sin their unfaithfulness to god and just how far they have gone apart from what god had called them to and what begins to filter throughout the crowd is not this cheer of celebration for the moment that they're in but instead they begin to weep they begin to cry and as Nehemiah hears this, he stops him. He says, no, 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 don't weep today. You are right to hear the truth in these words. You are right to feel this. But today, today we celebrate. That is what this moment is for. Today we celebrate because we are back in our home reading the law. Today we are back where we belong. Today this long road home has been completed. And we are being reminded who we are and who our God is. Today we've made it back on this long road that God has brought us on. So yes, the law cuts us. Yes, these words sting as Ezra reads them. Yes, we have much to mourn for what we have done. And there will be a day for that. But today is not that day. Today we celebrate. It's a beautiful picture of how God works for us. It reminds me of the father of the prodigal son. When the son comes home, he's been gone. He's, he squandered his father's inheritance that he had given him. He's been gone. He, he realizes, what am I doing? This is not the right place for me. He comes home and the father sees him, runs to him, hugs him, brings him back in. And throws the biggest party he's ever thrown. He kills their best calf. He prepares the best wine. And he prepares to feast in celebration. The older brother is none too happy, but the father defends his actions. And in Luke chapter 15, he says this, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now is found. And so it was with the people of Israel. They had been lost. They had been put into exile, banished from home. And like the prodigal son, now they have come back. There will be a time for repentance. There will be a time to give account for what has happened. But not today. Today we celebrate because we are home. I hope that does your heart good this morning. Because this is how God works. That as God's word convicts us, as the spirit moves in us, as we feel the weight of our sin, the appropriate and right heaviness and weight of our sin, the first reaction of God is not one of condemnation, not one where God says, how could you do something like this? Instead, it is a celebratory, welcome home. I'm glad you're back. I need to hear that regularly. I need to know that that is how God works all the time. The weight of my sin, the condemnation of my guilt can be at times too much to bear. If I stop and I consider all the ways in which I have failed, all the ways in which I constantly fail, that I deal with the same sins and I can't seem to shake any of those, as I once again deal with this sin over and over and over, weep the, the, the tears of, the, the bitter tears of guilt and sorrow, God says, yes, that is the proper response. 
And there'll be time for that later. But for now, there's a seat for you at my table. Come and eat. Let's celebrate. That is the grace of God in our lives. That is the grace of God in your life. I don't care how far you are from home. And as we talked about, we are all, all far from home in our, own, in our own ways. I don't care how long the road is to go back. When you come back to God, his response to you is, come, there's been a seat open at the table since the day you left. Come back. Let's eat. Let's feast together. Some of you have no idea that God is like that. Some of you have never heard that that's how God works. Some of you have been told, or at least you've been convinced, that you've got to earn your way back into his good graces before that seat at the table is open. But that's not how grace works. I need you to hear me this morning. God's grace is not that you can earn your way back. It's that the seat of the table has always been there. And it always will be. You have reserved seating. You simply need to come and eat and feast on the grace of God. The last line of Nehemiah 8.12, it says they rejoiced because they understood the words that were being told to them. They rejoiced and they celebrated because they understood, many of them for the first time in their lives, they understood both the holiness of God and the grace that he has shown them. May that be our story here this morning. That we all heard the words of grace. That we left here rejoicing at a God that did not leave us as exiles, but brought us back home. So then what did they do? If you keep going in chapter 8, they realize that, 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 that the reading of the law is happening, and as it's happening, they realize that they are at the right time where they should be observing a feast, to participate in one of the great feasts that God has commanded the people of Israel to do, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. We talked about this a couple of months ago when we began the book of Ezra. So they do as they're commanded, and they begin to build these temporary booths. They begin to, to kind of do this. So remember what we talked about, the Feast of Tabernacles? This is where they would all sleep outside under the stars. They would live in these kind of temporary, week-long shelters that they make up in order to, to remember how God was faithful to them in the desert and as they left Egypt in the Exodus to kind of mock, recreate what their ancestors went through as they fled from, sl from slavery. And it helps them to recall God's faithfulness even in the midst of those days. This week-long festival, and they recount the faithfulness of God to the people. It's designed to help them remember what God has done. So they read the law, they remember who they are, they remember who God is. They remember how God has delivered their people in the past. They tie that to how God has delivered them from exile now. And they celebrate it with this festival marking the occasion. And then when the celebration is over, they keep going. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. 
Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and they worshiped the Lord their God. Again, God ordains really long church services. That seems to be the message that we can take from this. But now comes the time when they spend that time confessing and repenting. Nehemiah said, there'll be a day for this, but today we celebrate. So then we fast forward from that, and now it is time for them to confess and repent. They don't just admit their sin, but instead they actively turn from their sin. It says that they separated themselves from the non-Israelites as a means of protecting the, the purity of the community. Remember at the end of chapter, or at the, at the end of the book of Ezra, in chapters 9 and 10, they had to deal with divorcing of the foreign wives, separating themselves out from them. Here they do it as a response to the law being read. They don't have to be condemned. They don't have to be told, look at all these things that you've done wrong. They hear the law. They realize, oh no, we're messed up here. They do it on their own. That is what repentance looks like. It's not just that they hear it and they say, oh no, and then they keep on going. They don't just confess their sin. They walk away and they turn from their sin. So yes, grace is free. The table is open. But then whenever, we're, we, whenever we, we, we indulge in that meal of grace, what follows is that we respond in repentance. We remember to do the work that His grace has freed us to do. To actually turn from the sin that put us in that place in the first place. And then you can look in, in Nehemiah chapter 9, 6 through 37. Big, long passage that is there. I'm not going to read all of it. But there's a long prayer of confession. There's this long prayer of confession and repentance of sin. They lay out all the things that they've done. All the things that the people that came before them had done. And they say, we were wrong for these things. God, help us, forgive us. We confess that we were wrong in them. And then in verse 38, they conclude the prayer. They come together. And it says, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now, I'll talk a lot more about this next week and what all this means. But I just want to point out, at the end of all of this, at the end of this long worship service, at the end of the festival of, of booths and the, the celebration that they have there, at the end of all these things that they go through, they then confess all their sins, repent of their sins. And then they come together and they make a covenant together with God, signed by the officials and all that participated in the covenant. This teaches us a powerful lesson about the way repentance is supposed to work. Because what we tend to think is that repentance is something that we do on our own. Right? When God convicts you of a sin, what do you do? You deal with it in private for the most part. 
You say, oh man, that's right, I shouldn't have done that. God, please forgive me of this, and then you move on. That's kind of the, the, the pathway of how this works. But what we see here is that their repentance is not done in isolation. It's not done in quiet, silent prayers all by themselves. It's not done in their homes where no one else knows. It's done in the public square with other members of the community. They confessed it, and they publicly asked everyone there to hold them accountable to what they had just said and done. They said, look at what I've done. I confess I've done this. God, help me with this. Now, I'm not saying you guys need to come up here and we need to take turns with the mic and you guys need to confess and then everybody out here is the priest to hear your confession. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I am saying is that there is a place where we need to be able to publicly talk about the ways that we fail. That we need to be able to communicate with one another and say, this is what I've done. I need to repent. I need to be held accountable for this. This is, in its purest form, how the church works. This begins for us at baptism. This is a big way in which baptism works. It is us coming forward, confessing our sins, saying that we are not worthy, we need the grace, of, the, the grace of, of Jesus, we need him to work in our lives, we need him for salvation. And then we participate in baptism. That's the sealing of the covenant. And we ask everyone there. This is why baptism doesn't happen in private. This is why baptism happens in front of the whole church. It is because we are effectively saying, I am doing this, and as I am doing this, I am asking you, church, to hold me accountable for this. Symbolically, my sins are washed away. But I know that my sins are not done with because we are not perfect yet. So church, hold me accountable. So this begins with baptism. That is the purpose, at least one of the purposes of baptism. And then it continues on in the life of the church. Now, there's a lot of different ways that that can play itself out. For us here at Providence, the best way that works itself out is in what we call our discipleship groups. Groups of three to five people. So you don't have to stand up here before everybody. But you can talk to these people that know you and know you well. And you can say, this is what I'm struggling with. This is the sin I can't seem to eliminate. And you openly confess it. Say, this is what I need help with. And then they help hold you to that, that you would turn from that sin. So we have different environments for these type of things. We come together, we have a service very much like what Nehemiah describes here in chapter 7 and 8 and 9. And then confession can happen here on Sunday morning for sure. But it's best going to happen in those groups that gather together regularly. So let's just summarize what we've seen from Israel in these two chapters. Now, I quickly just want to tie that together for what we do here. And as I said, as we go throughout this summer, as after we finish the book of Nehemiah, we're going to talk about this a lot more. Kind of the, the, what, what goes on behind why we do what we do. So they gather together, 
And what did they do? They read the word. And then they applied the word. They celebrated the grace of God. They remembered God's faithfulness and grace from their own lives and from the lives of previous generations. They confessed their sin. They repented of their sin. They prayed together. And they did it all in the context of community. And in a nutshell, that is what we do at Providence Church. That is, that is what we do here on Sunday mornings. It isn't all we do as a church, but it's a good picture of what our gatherings should be like. We study the Word. We apply the Word. We sing songs recounting the goodness and the faithfulness of God. We take time to remember God's faithfulness in our lives and in the lives of those that came before us. This is a big part of of what we do with the Lord's Supper. There's a lot more to it than that. But when we take the Lord's Supper, that is a big part of what we are doing. We are remembering what God has done on our behalf and celebrating the grace of God in that. We urge one another to confess their sin to one another. We pray together. And it's all done in the context of community that we might spur one another on and hold one another accountable. This is what we do at Providence Church. This is church. Now, I don't think this passage in the book of Nehemiah is here to say this is what church exactly should look like. But I think there's a lot we can learn from that. There's a lot we can learn about the grace of God. I think there's a lot that the church needs to learn about the power of God's word. We get so caught up in so many other things about church. So caught up in in all the different things we can do to try to draw more people in. And all that comes from good conversations and it comes from from a good place. But I think sometimes we we can get so caught up in that that that's what we try to draw people with. But the truth is, all that Ezra did is just read the law of Moses. Read the stuff that we would all pretty much consider the boring parts, at least a lot of it. But God's word works its way into the lives of the people. They find their identity in his word. Not in the style of music they sing. Not in the style of the building that they're in. They find their identity in His Word. They find how they have fallen short. And then they find the grace of God that comes with that. It's a beautiful picture of how church should work. And I hope that we can follow this model to the, to, as best we can, at least let this be a, a, a bit of a guide, a bit of a launching point for us to say, this is what we believe in. This is what we hold to be true. I pray that we here at Providence would do the same thing, that we would find our identity in the, the, the word of God and, and in the spirit as he applies that word to our lives. That is what the church is. 
That is the foundation of the church. And that's who we want to be. So that's why we do what we do here on Sunday morning. We want to be able to, it talks about how it was, it was read so that they would understand. We want to do it in a way that people can understand. But at the heart of it is the word of God. Applied by the spirit of God. Met by the grace of God. All to the glory of God. That's what we do. And that's who we want to be. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we do celebrate that grace. That we don't have to somehow earn our seat at the table. We don't have to show up and and give proof that we can afford to buy our way to the table. We don't have to justify our seat that is there. But for each one of us that would come to God, there is a plate full and our name sitting there. And it says reserved just for us. Father, may we know you like that. Full of grace, slow to anger, abounding in love. May we celebrate the way the people did in Jerusalem. May we repent the way the people did in Jerusalem. May we find our true identity in you, in your spirit, and in your word. May we be marked by that. Father, I pray that you would draw us here together to covenant together to that end. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.